So, boats. And as Kate just said, uh, we have been looking at boats. Uh, Noah built one, as Kate said. Jonah jumped from one. Peter abandoned one. And Paul nearly died in one. Uh, on one, a shipwreck. And it's a really interesting thing, and I'm going to come back to this as we go. I don't know what you think about those four sentences or phrases. Noah built one. Jonah jumped from one. Story of the big fish, the whale, and being swallowed by it. Peter abandoned one, and Paul nearly died on one. There's lots of things you could say about just those sentences, those phrases, but here's one of them. And Nath uh, spoke about uh, Noah two weeks ago, and Jill spoke about Jonah last week. And you would have picked up, because we've said it time and time again, and they both said it, the story of Noah is a myth. It's an ancient story. It's a piece of prehistory. Nathan referred to the story of Gilgamesh, the poem of Gilgamesh. It's called the Epic of Gilgamesh. Gilgamesh. You can read it online before you go to bed tonight if you want. It predates the story of Noah by about a thousand years. It's one of the world's oldest poems. And Gilgamesh travels the world and with, his, uh, with his friend, who's called Inkidu, actually. And uh, they, uh, they meet the man who survived the worldwide flood. And he tells them how he was ordered by the gods uh, of the Mesopotamians to build an ark, a boat. And, oh, it just so happens to be the same size as Noah's. And et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And this story is repeated in different forms, in different ways. It's a piece of prehistory, as are all the stories leading up to the start of the history in the Old Testament, which is the story of Abraham. It's history. It's prehistory. Now, when you say myth, just to say again, people go, oh, that's not true then. Actually, there are some things that are so true that you can only say them in metaphor. You can only talk about what love actually is in its purest form by comparing it to other things. William Shakespeare has to say, all the world is a stage. And in that one simple phrase, he encapsulates this great truth. You almost have to say it in pictures. A great um, myth should make us go, ah. That's really true. And that's what the story of Noah is all about. Because it takes hold of these worldwide epics and it twists them. And I, I, Nath said when he spoke about this the other week that there's a, a sermon online when I talked about what the twists are. But you read the story that all the people knew. Because they all knew the story, the Mesopotamian story. Because they were part of that part of the world under that empire. Or those empires. They all knew the story. But when Genesis tells the story, it tells the same old myth. And then it twists it. And you go, aha! Wow! That's what it's about. And then Jonah is a parable. It's a parable. Do you know that back in the 1960s, somebody at London School of Theology, as it's now called, the Old Testament professor there, suggested that this was a, was a parable and not a piece of history, that a giant whale or big fish swallowed a bloke and he lived inside, had lunch there for three days and then got puked up. And um, do you know, the, the result was that he was sacked. And he had to go to America to work in theology. Now, in the last 40 years... 
I guess, you wouldn't read one serious commentary that didn't tell you, we now know because of other things we've dug, because of archaeology, etc., that it was a parable. Of course it was a parable. But why am I telling you that? Because Peter abandoning the boat isn't. He actually did it. And Paul actually got shipwrecked on a boat. We got this wonderful thing, and you wonder why we do it. We turn metaphor into history. I really believe the world was made in six days and Jonah uh, uh, and Noah got on a boat. And if you don't believe that, you're not a proper Christian. We turn metaphor into literal historical truth. But when we come to literal historical truth, we turn it back into metaphor to get out of the implications of actually taking on what it's really talking about. Jesus asked Peter to follow him. And he wasn't saying, look, fine, follow me. I mean, really stay where you are. Keep all your friends. Stay in the same trade. Keep the same income. Just like believe these things. Because if you believe these things as opposed to those people who believe those things, you'll go to heaven. Whilst they won't. They'll die. But because you believe the right things, because you've given intellectual assent to the right statements, you're better than them. When Jesus said to Peter, follow me, as we heard from the Bible reading, he actually meant it. Isn't it incredible what we do? And you wonder why we do it. So we're going to talk about Peter for a bit. Peter abandoned one, a boat, and his business. He abandoned everything. He abandoned his security. He abandoned his financial income. He abandoned the way of life that he was committed to because he couldn't turn down Jesus. That's a strange story uh, that was read to us from Matthew's uh, gospel that Dave read. It's a strange little story as Dave Dave, um, laughed about it himself, but it's very short. And it basically tells us this, as Dave just says, that Jesus rocks up on a beach and he looked, it just says, Jesus came on the beach and he saw these fishermen and he said to Peter and his brother, Andrew, he said to uh, Simon, who is called Peter, that becomes important in a moment, he said to him, follow me. So it says, so immediately they followed him. I mean, how believable is that? Do you know, this, this bod who who wanders down a beach who they've never seen before, and he says, hey, abandon your business, abandon your livelihood, and follow me. And they go, hey, what a good idea. And they head off to do it. We turn the Bible into stupidity, and then we wonder why no one can believe it. But in actual fact, this story, or related stories, are told in, in all the Gospels. So I'm going to refer to, uh, I'm going to refer, first of all, to the story as it's told in John's Gospel, chapter 1. The thing is, often people who cling so desperately to the Bible don't read the Bible. Have you noticed that? Right? Don't read the Bible in context. So in John's Gospel, chapter 1, you check this out when you get home. Uh, here's the verses. It, it, it tells the story of how, um, John, uh, of how Simon was was listening to John the Baptist. You know, John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, is, is breathing social revolution. He's saying it can't go on like this. We have to have equality. Everyone has to count. And he, he tells the people to get on side with this battle. 
for inclusion. You read it, it's fantastic, hot political stuff. And we're told, you read this in John's Gospel, chapter 1, that Simon was watching and listening. And then Jesus comes and Jesus gets talking to him and Jesus says to them, this is quoting John chapter 1, Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which when translated is Peter, which means rock. And it doesn't say that Peter followed Jesus on that day. But Peter or Simon has been there as John the Baptist has spoken. And then as John the Baptist says, but I am just the foretaste. This man here, Jesus, will bring these things about. And then the very man that John the Baptist, this great prophet, is talking about, steps over to Simon and says, you're Simon. Wasn't a piece of fortune telling, <laughs> you're Simon. You're not Andrew, are you? He just says, you're Simon. But you will be called Peter. Now, I don't suppose you'd know this. Why should you know this? But the word Simon, the name Simon, or Simeon, same, same Hebrew name, means in ancient, history, uh, in ancient Hebrew, in ancient Hebrew history, it meant listen to. So Simon, the name Simon, meant one who listens. But in Greek Hellenized culture, you know, people always say Hellenized and you wonder what that is. All that means is that as the Greeks and Romans invaded the whole world, they Hellenized it. They took their thought into other cultures and they Hellenized them. Do you know? They, they Greekified them, Romanized them. That's what the term Hellenization means. So Jesus and Simon live in Hellenized Judea. The Romans have been in charge and before that the Greeks for centuries. And the Greeks and the Romans had subtly changed the meaning of the name Simon and it became derogatory. You know how some names in our society become derogatory slowly? And so the name Simon, you can check this out in classical Greek and street Greek in across the Hellenized Empire meant flat-nosed one. And it's a way of laughing. It was almost that it became a, 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 a mickey tape. You saw someone with a kind of flat nose. You go, flat nose one, Simon, Simon, flat nose. Did you see? It was, you're thick, you're thick. And everybody used the term in that way. So now you get it. Jesus says to this man, you are Simon. You're constantly laughed at as the flat nosed one. But I'm telling you, your name will be Rocky. <laughs> Follow me. You will be rock. You've been laughed at and put down. Follow me and it's going to be different. There's purpose. And, and, and Simon's already heard John the Baptist saying, you've got to follow this guy. Then something else happens you read about in Luke's Gospel. In Luke's Gospel, chapter 5, it says, uh, it, it, we're, we're told this story of down by the sea again. But this time in Luke's Gospel, it says how Jesus turned up on the beach and they'd been fishing all night. You know that one? And there had no fish and they're tired and this is their livelihood and there's no fish. And Jesus calls from the beach. But, but 
but we know that from John, we know that from John, uh, Peter's already encountered Simon, who will be called Peter. Simon Peter's already encountered Jesus before with John the Baptist. And he's already had this incredible encounter where he's going to be taught. He's told, you're going to be different. You're not going to be laughed at anymore. You're going to be rock. And so he listens to this man, and this man on the beach, Jesus, says, hey, I know you've been fishing all night, and it's been completely unproductive, but why don't you put your nets down on the other side? And they say, but we've been fishing all night, and we caught nothing. No, says Jesus, put your nets down on the other side. So they do, and they catch this huge catch of fish. And then, that's all before Peter's following Jesus. And then, in Matthew's Gospel, you get to, And Jesus stood on the beach and said to Peter, follow me. Now it makes sense, doesn't it? Immediately, he abandoned every trivial thing that had been clogging up his life. And he says, I'm not passing this one by. And immediately, he follows Jesus And still today, 2,000 years later, the challenge to me is exactly the same. Steve Chalk abandoned those things that you cling to, that encrust you, that you think are important. Because in the end, well, let's put it this way. What car did Martin Luther King drive? Do you know what kind of settee sofa he had? How big was his TV screen? Where did he go for his holidays? Did he get away on ski breaks? I'm not knocking any of that stuff. I'm not knocking at it. But here's the thing. Your life, my life, my life probably before your life will be turned into a line, a story, a memory. We are all laying down legacy for someone else. That's our task and our responsibility and our privilege and our duty to create legacy for those who come beyond us. And by the time they arrive, your life, whoever you are, is just a line in history. What do you want that line to be? That's what Jesus is saying to Peter. Follow me. Do it differently. Don't get encrusted with all the stuff that encrusts people as they endlessly sit there and whittle away their years till there's no energy left. Do it. Whatever it is, only you know what it is. Only you know what that deep passion is. Well, anyway, that's the title screen. So, kind of, kind of, So, the funny thing is, I've introduced you to this word before. My friend Dave's here, and we were laughing about this word. This is a Greek word. It's pistis, and, and <laughs> you know, it's strange, isn't it? Pistis. But pistis is the Greek word for faith. So it crops up in the New Testament endlessly. Faith, faith, faith. Live by faith, live by faith, live by faith. Pistis. You recognize the pi at the beginning if you're a mathematician the P, and you recognize the sigma halfway through, you know, if you're into engineering and all that kind of stuff. Pistis, that's the word that is used constantly for faith. And I've said a little bit before, and we're going to talk about this in months to come a lot more, that pistis doesn't really mean faith. It means faithfulness. It doesn't mean an a, 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 
commitment to a set of beliefs. It means to do something. It means allegiance to, loyalty to, determination to live a certain way. It's what you do. It's not the kind of neat beliefs you have in your head, which means you're one of the good guys and everybody else who doesn't agree with you is one of the bad guys. That's uh, what it's all about. Faithfulness is what pistis uh, means. Um, It's interesting, actually, that uh, pistis is the Greek form. It's a bit complicated for geeks. Pistis is the Greek form of a word that appears in Hebrew. Read it the other way around. That's the Hebrew word for faith, and it's amen. And um, so, just a quote uh, from Genesis, famous story in Genesis, um, in Genesis about Abraham. It says, uh, God says to Abraham, you know these words, look up at the heavens and count the stars if indeed you can count them. So shall your offspring be. And God promises Abraham that he'll be the beginning of this huge nation that brings peace to the world. And then the passage, the little story concludes. You can, you can read it. It's in Genesis chapter 15, if you want to know. It's verse 5 and 6, if you really want to know. So um, uh, then it concludes. This is the condu- uh, conclusion. You know these words. Abraham believed the Lord, and the Lord credited it to him as righteousness. Righteousness being living the right way. Abraham believed the Lord, and the Lord credit it to him. Now, the word believed is the word amen. Abraham, amen, the Lord. Now, the word amen is a really interesting one. Previously, you may have heard us say, and we'll say more about this in the next coming months, we haven't planned it in yet, but remember us saying that Hebrew um, language was material. It wasn't conceptual, it was always material. So this word, believe, Abraham, amen, God, Abraham, believe the Lord. Well, belief is a concept, it's not material. You see, it's not a real concrete thing. So actually, when the translators translate Adam, um, Abraham, Adam, uh, 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 Abraham, amen, the Lord, what they're actually saying is something else that the translators metaphorically translate as believe so that we can make sense of it. And what amen actually literally means, you can hunt the concordances, you know, the, I mean the, the ancient dictaries and things, and you'll discover this. Amen actually means to support with the arm. It was used of a nurse. So a nurse would support a patient, would wrap herself around a patient, a midwife, you can read about the midwives of the Jews, they would wrap themselves around, they would support, they would carry the child, and the word is amen, it means to carry, it means to nurse, it means to bear somebody. Now when you look at that word a bit closely, amen, change one letter of it, and then you'll know the word, just, would you, which word would you change it? Which letter would you change into a word that you know well? If you change the second A into an E, it says, Amen. When we say Amen, that doesn't mean abracadabra, do it, Lord. You know, know, we, we bothered to tell you about it, so Amen, do it. We pray harder and you better do it. 
And if we pray in the right way, you do it. Amen, amen means we will nurse this and we will carry this and we will struggle with it and we will bear it and we will do it with you. The whole Bible is collaborative. Do you know there's, there's a famous theologian, his name is James Dunn. Um, he's um, a very famous theologian to say that because nobody's ever heard of him. Think of Tom Wright and think of someone uh, who's studied all of that stuff at a, a, a greater depth than Tom Wright. Probably never heard of Tom Wright. You pro- <laughs> you've heard of Ian Wright. He's on Match of the Day, isn't he? So kind of like that. Think of Ian Wright and then think of someone who studied theology. You get Tom Wright. Think of Tom Wright and think of someone who's done a lot more. And it's uh, James Dunn. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, anyway, James Dunn. Uh, well, I'm telling you about James Dunn. Oh, yeah. James Dunn has written this huge book on Paul's um, theology. And he's got a massive session on the Holy Spirit. Because sometimes we talk about the Holy Spirit as though the Holy Spirit's magic. Do, you know, do we leave room for the Holy Spirit to do it? Here's what James done, and, and I'm, t- I'm just uh, I, I personalised this in James, but uh, you know, all serious things. You cannot extract from the writings of Paul a theology of the Holy Spirit as distinct from walking with Christ, living with Christ. Put off this, do this, struggle. In Paul, he doesn't do no, no, do all this stuff, and then just leave it to the Holy Spirit. In Paul, the two things are so integrated, you cannot separate them out. Being filled with the same Holy Spirit is the same thing as struggling and nursing and being committed to something and deliberately struggling to put off this way of thinking and that way of acting and instead live this way and that way and do this and do that. And is it the work of the Spirit or is it your work? No, it's all muddled up together. And only Western Christianity in the last, well, not even the last four, in the last 200 years has managed to extract the two things and come up with a kind of magic theory of what the Spirit does without our struggle. But our struggle is filled with the Spirit of God as you experience yourself as you serve. Two things uh, go together. So, this word, pistis, or the Hebrew word, amen, both mean the same thing. They mean get on and do it. Um, years and years ago, it happened to be in 1980, Cornelia, who's up there right now, and it's probably, I didn't tell her I was going to say this, probably very embarrassed about it right now, and um, there you go. But on, uh, on August the uh, 23rd in, in 1980, um, Cornelia Reeves, who she was then, and me, Steve Chaw, we went to uh, a church in West Nord in South London uh, with our friends and we stood at the front of the church rather kind of embarrassed and all that kind of thing, a bit like uh, 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 Andy and Mary will do next Saturday here. And um, I said this to Cornelia. I said, I call upon these persons here present to witness that I, Stephen John Chaw, that's my middle name, <laughs> There you go. (laughs) I call upon these persons here present to witness that I, Stephen John Chalk, to take you, Cornelia Reeves, to be my lawful wedded wife, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish till we are parted by death. And to this end, I give you my solemn word. 
And Cornelia, of course, made the same commitment to me, which she may have regretted over the years. <laughs> but that's just the point, do you see? There are times when you regret it. Sometimes, for us, over these 38 years of being married, life has been really easy, and it's honestly been filled with complete, absolute, wonderful joy, and, you know, in sharing our children's lives, and now our grandchildren's lives, and, and it's just been joy, and would I be married to anyone else? No, and do I love Cornelia more than I loved her to start with? Yes, but yes, really, truly, but the fact of the matter is also, though sometimes our feelings have worked for us, and sometimes they've helped us, sometimes they've not. Sometimes circumstances, just the sheer grind of work and raising kids and the, uh, the, and, and the tiredness that that brings and the lack of cash and the lack of finance and the demands of work, sometimes circumstances and opportunities have worked in our favor and sometimes they've been against us. Sometimes, therefore, faithfulness, which is what I committed myself to, I didn't commit myself to believe in a thing called love. I committed myself to have and hold from this day forward for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish till we are parted by death. They're actions, not a sense to some thing going on in your head, boom, 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 romantic. And sometimes faithfulness has been a, a, a pure joy and a pleasure and incredibly fulfilling experience. And sometimes in the face of the mundane nature of everyday life and doubt and temptation, it has been really very difficult. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, you're not being honest with yourself. Faithfulness, it turns out, pistis and amen are about faithfulness. Not about, as I've said several times already, just believing some airy, fairy things. Setbacks, struggle, are not the enemy of faithfulness. They sharpen faithfulness. They keep it true. They mature it. They deepen it. They strengthen it. Faithfulness is hard, it's demanding, it requires resilience, it's about honesty, honesty, openness, instead of a load of lies pumped out. Pistis, faith, faithfulness, is about more about action and behavior than cerebral acceptance. I'll say that again. Pistis is more about action and behavior than cerebral acceptance. Pistas should never have been translated faith. It is always faithfulness, allegiance. All those brilliant songs that Paul and the band led us in were about God's faithfulness to us. God's faithfulness never, ever fails. It's not some kind of light thing he signed up to one day, wrote the, you know, got someone to write it down in the Bible while he's doing something else. God is faithful to you and will not abandon you, whatever you've done, whatever mess you got yourselves into. It's no worse than the messes I've got my Myself into God does not abandon us and he celebrates us and in 
recognition, gratitude for what he's done for you, whether you live this way or not, whether you muck it up and let him down or not. But God said, Jesus, God says to us, follow, live in tune with the story that's true of you instead of out of tune with it. You are loved. Now live that way, live in tune with it. So Jesus says to this fisherman, follow me. And he meant follow me. He meant leave your boat, leave your security, leave the way of life that you are going, reprioritize with your money and your time and your energy and your passion and your vision and your purpose. Do it differently, centered on me. And the question is, where are we on all of that? There's a great song that's written by um, someone called Foy Vance. Some of you know who Foy Vance is, and some of you won't. And in a moment, Paul is going to sing uh, Foy's song. Foy is an Irish uh, 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 songwriter and singer. And he writes a song, An Indiscriminate Act of Kindness. The words are beautiful. The words are about a woman who's become a sex worker and a drug user. She's been reduced to despising herself because no one's on her side. No one's there for her. No one's faithful to her. She's abandoned and lost. And she meets someone who's kind, who instead of taking from her again and using her once more, instead gives to her and calls it an indiscriminate act of kindness. So if we believe in faithfulness as faithfulness and then behavior and action rather than uh, cerebral concepts that we sign up to so we're better than the church down the road or the guys who aren't Christians, the only way of doing this is to do it. It so happens, of course, this week has been the coldest, um, has been the, 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 well, they called last Monday, didn't they? Blue Monday. It's the most depressing day of the year, somebody's worked out. It's the day when most people are, uh, people are most likely to commit suicide or, you know, like, they just give up on life. And then, then through, this, um, through this last days, it's been freezing cold, hasn't it? Freezing. It's warmer today. It's milder today. But these last couple of weeks, if you're out in the streets, it's freezing and as you know, if you lived in London for a long time, back in the, uh, the, the uh, 1980s, there used to be loads of people sleeping on the streets of London. Do you remember that? And then things were done for them and they all went. But now we live under policies that create what you saw on the way to church this morning. More people living under cardboard area. You know, you go up to Lower Marsh, Upper Marsh, there's a whole community living under the tunnel at Upper Marsh. The evening, the Coffee House congregation want to get involved in this and uh, we, want to, we want to help them a bit and work with them because we think that they help us as well to see life a bit more clearly. But, you know, around London, people are everywhere, aren't they? Do you agree with me? It's just everywhere, sleeping there. And then you have that embarrassing encounter when you not get any cash in your pocket, don't you? And you kind of go, and shall I give them something? And you're, you're trying to shuffle past. And then you think, well, if I give them money, they might use it on alcohol. I'd like to ask you a question. How much alcohol have you consumed this last week while sat in your lounge watching your telly? 
So we deny this guy on the street some beer, which might just cheer him a bit, but we use wine, <laughs> respectably, to do the same thing. You're on the street, it's freezing frigging cold. Give the person the chance for a pint of beer, if that would just help. Until there's our society's organized in a more compassionate and just way, when once again, because we nearly got to it in the early 90s, uh, and through the 90s, we, yeah, it was through the 90s, where we did something about this. But a load of stuff's going wrong. And it may be that you're working in policy and all of that, what for us, charity or in government and all the rest of it. There you go, faithfulness. Follow me, says Jesus. But there are things that we can do. And so we've taken our morning offering, so we just wanted to do an indiscriminate act of kindness. Through this week, because of the cold and because it's dreary, dark January, we want to, just, we're not setting up a long-term project or anything, although the coffeehouse congregation might do that, but we just want to put our faith into action, live by allegiance and loyalty and faithfulness rather than live by faith as an abstract set of concepts. So we're going to take a, another offering if you choose to be part of it as Paul and I think Flick are going to sing this song to us. I think we've got a chance to join in with some of it at some stage. But um, Danielle's going to be down there and we've got, um, we got a credit card machine. And uh, uh, there's also um, some lists there um, with name, uh, email address, and phone number. It may be that you don't want to get involved in this at all. That's, that's cool. You've got other priorities. Do you know? We've got loads of us. It's about what we're doing and how we're following rather than following in doing this thing. Do you see? So the challenge is how we do it through this week somehow. Uh, follow Jesus wherever we're working and whatever you're doing. And you're doing great jobs in lots of places, I, I, you know, I know. I just like take my hat off for what you guys are all involved in every day of the week. But um, it may be that you've got some time to give or it may be that you've got some money to give. So we're gonna send around some orange buckets that you can give to in cash if you want. But you know, if you're like me, you don't carry any cash. So we got a, a cash uh, machine there. And we got, you, you can come down and you can uh, use the cash machine or there's these lists here where you can sign up for time. Because what we're going to do is we're going to take that money and uh, what we're, we're going to do is we might buy some, uh, with it, some travel cards. So people can travel on the tube or they can get onto the tube because it's warmer in one of those tunnels than it is on the street. And uh, we might uh, give people uh, food tokens and we might buy them uh, some beer. Um, we might do all of those things. And you, so this is an indiscriminate act of grace. And uh, you might like to give some of your time, you know, just if you've got an hour this week, because Danielle, you know, I do all the talking, Danielle does all the organizing, it's rather wonderful. And, um, you might like to sign up to give some of your time because we'd like to work with some of those people on the streets in cooperation with other agencies that are doing that. Or you might like to give some money. Or you might like to be doing something else because you might know that what I've said about following Christ for you is a different thing. Let's pray.